This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. Hi, everyone. Amanda and I are so excited to announce our Tier 3 Patreon membership. Tier 3 members will receive the same benefits as Tier 1 and 2 members, including early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and a monthly newsletter, but will also receive access to group study sessions led by Amanda and I. These study sessions will be held once a month from November through February, and we'll be answering your questions and leading discussions on the topics you want to review. The first study session will be held on Sunday, November 22nd. Don't worry if you can't make the live session. You can submit your questions ahead of time and all Tier 3 members will receive the recording of the session to review. For more details and to sign up for your membership, visit www.patreon.com slash certified OCS prep podcast. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to continue on with our uh, little mini-series about neck pain and cervical spine diagnoses. Um, This one that we're going to cover today is the second subgroup. It's neck pain with movement coordination impairments. These uh, diagnoses are going to include sprains and strains of the cervical spine. We're going to discuss the presentation, examination, and physical impairment measures. This subcategory, you'll also see it noted in some resources, is going to include those whiplash-associated disorders or those WAD diagnoses. Um, So definitely in the more updated clinical prediction world, you'll see it that way. And I believe in current concepts, they cover this some. So Anytime you're seeing whiplash-type diagnoses, you want to categorize those patients into this subgrouping. The patient presentation for this population, generally you're going to see long-standing neck pain, usually more than 12 weeks. Um, I'll be honest, in my clinical experience, I generally see these patients. It's very episodic, it seems. Um, so they'll, they'll finally be in therapy the second or third time they have pain, and it's usually several weeks in duration for that episode. But I will sometimes see these patients with years of neck pain. Alexis, do you agree? Do you have a similar experience with these folks? Yeah, very similar. Um, You know, I don't know that it's published strongly in the literature, but in my experience, too, I think that females, I tend to see more females that fall into this category opposed to males. um, But that's not necessarily hard and fast. Um, The ergonomic insufficiencies of, like, prolonged sitting, you know, all day your desk workers, people looking at phones, computers, tablets, that kind of a thing, um, those folks are going to fall into this category. They're also going to present with coordination, strength, and endurance deficits of their neck and upper quarter muscles. So these are the patients that are going to complain that feeling like their neck gets very tired, they feel like they have to hold their head up, 
they just feel like they're constantly stretching and can't find a comfortable position. Um, you know, they'll complain to you that it just doesn't feel like they're stable. Their mechanism of onset is oftentimes, but not always, linked to a trauma or whiplash. And that's specifically for those whiplash-associated type subgrouping. You're going to sometimes see an associated referred shoulder girdle or upper extremity pain. Note that that's going to be different than a true radiculopathy. Sometimes in whiplash cases, you will see dizziness or nausea or some other nonspecific signs and symptoms of concussion. Um, Concussions are a whole different topic. Um, We're not going to cover that in this episode, but be screening, you know, some of those red flag screening items definitely in this population. Sometimes this can also be associated with headaches. Um, I don't want that to be misleading or confused with the cervicogenic headache subcategory that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks here. Um, But sometimes headaches can lead to concentration or memory deficits and confusion. Sometimes those hypersensitivities to light or sound, odors or changes in temperature. So we'll get more into those type of things with the headache subcategory. But you will sometimes see it in that like whiplash associated group or the um, uh, headache type categories. Examination measures. So the things we want to be looking at in these patients that have the movement coordination impairments. The first important one is the, what they call the cranial cervical flexion test. And this is a special test utilized to assess the ability to initiate and maintain isolated cranial and cervical flexion, which is essentially a chin nod. You're going to position the patient in hook lying, and their head and neck is going to be positioned in neutral. The therapist may need to use like a towel roll or um, the edge of a pillow to achieve that neutral position. Some patients cannot achieve that on their own. You're going to then place a pneumatic pressure device. So I think a lot of clinics have those biofeedback cuffs or certainly a blood pressure cuff will work too. You're going to place that under the occiput, um, basically into that cervical lordotic curvature between that and the table. And you're going to inflate it to 20 millimeters of mercury to fill that space. The patient is then going to perform cervical or cranial flexion in five gradual increments. So 22 millimeters of mercury to 24 26, 28, and 30. So again, starting at 20 and increasing by increments of two for five five steps. And they're going to hold each position for 10 seconds. The patient is going to rest for 10 seconds between each stage. And as the therapist, in order to make sure the patient's performing the movement properly, you want to instruct the patient to gently nod the head as though the patient was discreetly saying yes. That motion, when it's performed properly, is going to flatten the cervical lordosis, and it's going to change the pressure reading in that pneumatic device so that you want to make sure the patient can see the um, dial so that they can see how much they're doing. It's very common that patients will push very hard the first couple times until they really understand the proper movement and how, how little and isolated of a movement it should really be. The therapist should monitor for the activation of the superficial muscles, such as the sternocleidomastoid, and help the patient to understand how to minimize that. In order to decrease the activation of the platysma or the hyoid, the patient should be cued to place the tongue on the roof of their mouth. Their lips should be gently placed together, and their, but their teeth should be slightly separated. The test is terminated uh, when the pressure is decreased by more than 20% or when the patient cannot perform without substitutions from the sternocleidomastoid. Normal findings are for the pressure to increase between 20 to 26 and 30 millimeters of mercury, and the patient can maintain that for 10 seconds without any substitution patterns and no cueing. 
Abnormal findings are when the patient is unable to generate an increase of six millimeters of mercury. They cannot hold that position for 10 seconds. They use superficial muscles to compensate, or what you'll see a lot, especially the first couple of repetitions as they start to get the hang of it, they merely just extend their head into the table, and that's um, not going to give them the same kind of pressure feedback. So that, again, is the cranial cervical flexion test. Then, um, you know, you can use a lot of that same testing in treatment. You know, there's a lot of um, research out there about using the biofeedback cuffs for training and helping patients find spine neutral and all of that. So, um, you know, we can certainly, if you have any questions about that, we can help you navigate those resources. The next neck flexor muscle endurance test is the next test you want to be looking at in this population. It's a test used to used to assess the endurance of the deep neck flexors. So in this test, the patient is lying supine or hook lying. They're going to maximally retract the cervical spine by performing that chin tuck. They're going to maintain the contraction isometrically. Then they're going to lift the head and neck one inch above the plinth while they maintain that retracted position. So again, this is your chin tuck and head lift test. The clinician's going to observe the skin folds along the side of the neck, and you're going to cue the patient to maintain that position as long as possible. Sometimes what you'll see as they start to fatigue is they start to flex more. Um, that would be known as a compensation pattern. That's not, that's not what we want. We want no movement. Um, you'll also see them start to lose the skin folds or lose that retracted position as they become fatigued. The test is terminated if the skin folds are separated for more than one second. I think also you have to be watching for when they start to increase the skin folds by flexing more as they fatigue. There's variable data published on norms for this, um, but they're going to range anywhere from 30 to 40 seconds in patients with neck pain um, is what we want. But sometimes in this population, you'll see it anywhere from like 15 to 25 seconds. Um, so just educating them on where they're at, what their baseline is, and then where they want to be. Again, it's another test that translates well into treatment to work on those deep neck flexors and the endurance of those muscles. The last special test that's particularly important in this population is the pain pressure test. So in this population with movement coordination impairments, we're going to anticipate a positive test. Um, this is not the only subpopulation that may have a positive test on this. Um, but basically, it's a test that's going to measure local pressure pain thresholds in the upper trap. So the patient's going to be seated with a and a digital pressure algometer is going to be applied perpendicular to the muscle at the angle of the upper fibers of the trap muscle. So kind of right along the lateral neck. The pressure is going to increase from the therapist at four to five newtons per second. The patient is then going to inform the therapist the moment the sensation changes from pressure to pain. The test is going to be performed three times on each side. Um, when lower values are seen locally at the neck, the results of that test are going to suggest a local hypersensitivity due to a mechanical pathology. So that pretty much means that you're probably dealing with um, some kind of localized neck issue, you know, whether that be a mobility issue, you know, this is applicable in that population also, versus a movement coordination issue and they're having pain in, through the upper traps. Um, if you're doing this test and you are getting kind of readings that are all over the place, it's recommended that you perform it in another body part, such as the lower extremity. And if you're finding more widespread values, um, especially at the neck and lower extremity, that's going to indicate the possibility of a central nociceptive processing disorder, so like central sensitization. They're going to fall more into the category of chronic neck pain, um, needing some neuroscience-graded activity, that sort of treatment. 
So again, it's not an end-all be-all test, the pain pressure test, but I think it's a good one to be aware of um, to help screen patients, you know, for what type of treatment might be most applicable. It's definitely something too that can help in terms of trying to figure out some chronicity, you know, generally more chronic pain is going to fall into those more widespread value issues as opposed to more acute is probably going to be more of a localized hypersensitivity with a mechanical pathology. The other things we want to be examining in the patients with movement coordination impairments is cervical active range of motion. Um, pain is going to be reproduced with mid-range motion and it's going to worsen further with end-range positions. So they may start to have pain mid-range and by the time you get to end range, they're going to tell you that it's worse than where it started. Um, palpation's probably going to include trigger points or symptom onset in muscle groups of the surrounding cervical spine. Definitely the upper traps, suboccipitals, um, I think pretty classic regions that we're all used to. And then always, 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 we can't harp on this enough, but making sure you're doing your medical screening. Um, yes, in terms of the OCS, but also just clinically. In terms of the OCS, some questions that I think you will see again are definitely looking to check your ability to even see if the patient, especially in the cervical spine population, is even appropriate for treatment. So be looking for those indicators within the vignettes of the questions that you're answering, whether or not they have any red flags present. Alexis, do you have anything else you wanted to include in examination of these patients before we move on to interventions? No, I don't think so. Okay. So interventions is, again, broken down into that acute, subacute, and chronic there's tons and tons and tons of research on different specific interventions within these neck pain patients. Um, we're going to go over them generally. Um, they are detailed a little bit more in the CPG. There's some very specific research articles that in there that you may find beneficial to read. So for the acute pain, acute pain um, movement coordination impairment subgroup, you want to be working towards pain-free cervical range of motion, whether you need to start that laying down or sitting. Um, however, that's tolerated by the patient best. You're going to progress to postural and positioning elements, again, working a range of motion with good posture, and you're going to monitor to minimize their symptom onset. We want to educate these patients to remain active. Sometimes in that acute phase, they're really demotivated to do much. They're scared. They're going to do something to make it worse. Encourage them to participate in their normal activities. We all know the longer people go without doing their normal activities, the more likely they are to head towards chronic uh, symptoms. And then we really, in this population, you want to minimize collar use or discourage like any kind of immobilization. You know, sometimes people, they'll come in and kind of hold in the side of their neck and just say that they're really uncomfortable. Um, you know, make sure that you educate them that movement is good and it's not going to harm them. In the subacute population, again, we want to encourage movement and general activities to minimize that chronicity. That's kind of across the board. This population, the subacute folks, are going to need a little bit more of a combined exercise approach. They need probably a little more active cervical range of motion exercises, um, whether that be manual or um, exercise-based, doesn't necessarily state. You want to start isometric low load strengthening in these folks, so um, any kind of like postural retraining, um, neck isometrics, uh, whether that be supine, sitting, standing. Again, I think it's position-dependent on patient. Um, manual therapy is indicated in these folks, whether it be mobilization or manipulations. Um, modalities are appropriate in this population, too, for the subacute folks. You know, mostly heat or ice if they need it to be able to tolerate the exercise. Or sometimes TENS. I think TENS, you know, we could go back and forth all day. But I do think it has a time and place, um, at least if it helps people tolerate exercise and movement better. I think it's valuable. I also think it's 
probably a better option. I've seen it more used lately as we drift away from the narcotics prescription, especially in acute and subacute folks, also in chronic, but it can be a nice option for those folks if it gets them to tolerate activity. And you definitely want to be pushing the home exercise program with these subacute folks, making sure they understand how often they need to be doing exercises. You know, frequency is key. We don't want them just moving in the morning and then sitting at a desk all day. The skilled PT for these folks, again, uh, active range of motion exercises, working on stretching, and then the strengthening and endurance training of the deep neck flexors is important. I think that's definitely important to do in your skilled PT sessions for a couple visits before you really assign it as a home exercise program, really making sure the patients have good technique, that they understand what they're self-monitoring for so they're not compensating. You know, they don't always have somebody there that has the skilled eye that we do to say, nope, you're using your superficial muscles again. You need to reset and start again, that kind of thing. But definitely the postural and coordination part of that too. You know, if you're going to start to work towards standing scapular exercises and stuff, making sure they understand how those deep neck flexors play a role in standing and checking their neck posture before they just start working on their scapular muscles. And then in the chronic um, subgroup of neck pain with movement coordination impairments, this one comes a lot with education as with any chronic pain population. Um, You want to educate them regarding the prognosis. You know, neck pain doesn't have to be an end-all be-all. We want them normally moving. We want to encourage them to get back to their activities they enjoy as well as their work activities. These patients generally are going to need more reassurance, some pain management, and pain neuroscience education. Um, Definitely cervical mobilizations can be helpful with these folks. Um, You know, if it's timed right and dosed properly, sometimes these patients are fearful. They've had pain for so long of anyone touching their neck. Um, So you may have to start gradually and work your way up to mobilize. You may have to start with a little soft tissue work just so they aren't so hypersensitive. Then you want to include progressive exercises for cervical, scapular, and thoracic strengthening. So again, a little bit more strengthening and endurance training. You may need to work gradually, but that's what's really going to help these folks in their chronic pain. I think also to be on the lookout in these chronic folks are the folks that have had this very episodic type of pattern. You know, they have it for two, three months, and then it goes away for six. And then they have it for a few months, and it goes away for six. Working with activity modification and graded activities to help get these folks back to tolerating not just activity, but sometimes in these chronic folks, I find that they just have a hard time with positional tolerance. It's not any one activity. It's sitting through their workday. It's sitting to drive. It's those type of things. So graded activity to return to those type of things. And sometimes um, cognitive behavioral therapy principles can be helpful for these guys. Um, The other thing in the chronic folks, sometimes concussion and whiplash-associated disorders can again become very chronic very easily. So just considering a referral to a vestibular therapist if it's, you know, warranted, you know, just to check their um, eye, head, and neck coordination, you know, some of their eye movements, if that's something you feel comfortable doing, certainly incorporate it if it feels a little out of your wheelhouse. Um, Consults to vestibular therapists are very much appropriate in this chronic group. And again, modalities of TENS, I think the role there again is just to get them to tolerate a little more movement, tolerate a little more activity. So that's kind of the rundown of examination, treatment, and presentation for our neck pain with movement coordination impairments. What we're going to do next, our next subcategory will be with um, radiating pain or radicular pain. Alexis, do you have anything you want to add to movement coordinations? Um, Yeah. I mean, the only thing is just reiterating the point of just clinically – 
layering in vestibular work with some of these um, neck patients. I've actually had patients with chronic neck tightness or people who work on the computer a lot, um, particularly, I think, since people have been working at home more and they're on their laptops more. Um, so, I mean, I guess, I guess a couple points to this. First of all, like, definitely talk to them about their home ergonomic setup. I think it's a much bigger thing now, and I think it's going to continue for a while. Um, I think a lot of companies are either going full work from home or um, at least part-time work from home. So I've worked through a lot of issues with a lot of my patients recently on like even just making the text bigger on their laptop and making sure they don't just have their monitor to the right side they're looking at the most. And like going through that ergonomic stuff, I think is super important talking to them about getting up every hour, moving around because they're just not getting as much daily movement as they normally would. Um, but the other thing is I've actually had a lot of good results with patients layering in some vestibular work, whether that's, you know, just eye drills, some VOR, whatever, with my patients who have neck tightness, even if they're not presenting with dizziness, um, because we get a little bit of that kind of contract relax effect in the neck when we're moving our eyes, everything's just so, it functions all together, right? So by adding some of that in, I've actually clinically seen a lot of, um, good results with patients and getting some of that neck tightness to loosen up. So, and you know, same thing, even if you've got people who are acute, super tight, not tolerating much, except, you know, maybe some like supine active range of motion, layering in some of those eye drills, it's something you can give them that they can work on. Um, and they may actually get some relief of their neck symptoms. So just something to consider. I, w- I would definitely agree with that. I think, you know, I have a vestibular therapist that I work with very closely in my office. So I will often just refer just because he's better at it than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think even if they don't have a strong clinical presentation, I mean, as people age, you become less like you're more sensitive to those types of movements, you know, mm-hmm. like movement sure. and um, like those disorienting type of positions and stuff. So, um, you know, those types of things. And I think that that can all go together and it's just a good starting point. Anything we can do. Sometimes these patients are so sensitive to any kind of movements of their head. So anything you can do to start the process, is going to be helpful to them. Yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in the musculoskeletal system that we start to forget that we don't walk around just moving our musculoskeletal system, like that nervous system, it's always involved. So we talk about you know, the behavioral side of things and the, you know, if we're feeling stressed and whatever, but also considering that vestibular system, I think is something that can be really valuable. The other thing I will kind of piggyback on what you said, Alexis, is lately, just with the amount of people working from home, you know, we see these people every day, you know, it becomes second nature to us to be like, raise your computer up and get up every hour. And most of us Mm -hmm. have more active jobs than people with a seated desk job. I, you cannot underestimate how much education these people need. You know, you think you're telling something, obviously get up every hour. Well, there are a lot of people who have never, ever, ever done that in their work day, whether it be the way the office is set up. And I can't believe how much less people are moving just because they're in their homes. You know, they're going from the office to the bathroom, 
you know, at least when they're at the office, they're walking into the parking lot, they're going up the stairs, they're going to someone else's Exactly. Desk. There's mm-hmm. all this type of movement that's just gone for these people. And I think as therapists, we have to really not just educate them on what they need to do, but help them figure out how they need to do it. So helping them figure out, like, you need to set an alarm on your phone every 30 minutes. And when that alarm rings, you've got to get up for five, you know, or whatever the yeah. case may be. You know, I have a patient right now. She sticks sticky notes on the bottom of her computer. She puts five there in the morning and five there in the afternoon. And they have to all be moved over to the other monitor by lunch. And she moves them back in the afternoon. That's her cue to know she's gotten up enough. Whatever the case may be, um, you have to help them figure out a strategy to do it. Otherwise, they're going to feel defeated. You know, if someone's asking you to do something you've never done in your workday and people get busy, you have mm-hmm. to get up every hour. That's a hard thing to do for some people. It doesn't seem like it because of the nature of our work as therapists, but it is very difficult. It is. And I think too, that so many people thought when this all first started, like, oh, this is short term. And they set themselves up at their dining room table. And that's just where they've been. And they're just in a poor setup. And then they end up with all these new problems. So um, I think having that desk setup conversation, as much as I feel like I'm repeating myself all the time, and I'm like, I don't, I can't believe people don't know this, but they don't know. So like you said, don't underestimate that. And, um, Make sure you're having that conversation with all of your patients right now about how their day-to-day has changed and how that might be affecting their symptoms. Sure. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to send us an email, Instagram message, whatever is easiest for you. Um, Don't forget we have some additional resources out on the Patreon page. Um, So those are available to our Patreon members. Um, And other than that, we will see you next time for uh, radiating pain. All right. Great. Thank you.